Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 4? And we've come in this study to verse 43. We should ever be reminded of how in John chapter 20, at the close of the chapter, John reveals the purpose of his gospel. He writes in there, he says, these are just a few of the miracles, the things that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. Then he goes on and he says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's an evangelistic gospel, of course, in the old days, the, the four gospels, the writers, the gospel writers were called the four evangelists. So each of the gospels, of course, is to present Christ. The gospel is simply to present the essential reality of Jesus. This is all we can do. We are not the Holy Spirit. We can preach it. We can teach it, we can present it, we can pray over it and pray over those to whom it is presented, but we cannot save them. Only God will save them. Only God can call them to himself. The power of my invitation can only do so little, but it is the power of the drawing of God, the convicting of God, the work of God that saves us. And that's replete throughout the scriptures and especially we've already seen it in John's gospel. For example, back in chapter one, maybe you'll remember, it says, he came into the world and the world came into being through him and the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own received him not. But to as many as believed, as received him, to them he gave authority to be the children of God and to have life in his name, in his name. In his name. It's very important. In the doctrine of salvation, it's of course important in John's gospel as well. We'll talk about that as we get into this passage. It's a passage that makes a contrast between unbelief and belief. There are only two religions in the world, there are only, there are only two aspects of religion and one is a religion of unbelief you can put everything in that column that presents something without containing as its foundational doctrine 
believing in Jesus, in the name of Jesus. That's everything else. And then there's the other column, which is the religion of faith. It has nothing to do with human merit. It has nothing to do with how or where we were born. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with lineage or ancestry. It has nothing to do with works or behavior. There is no amount of, of behavior. There are, there are no codes or policies or things presented that we must do or perform or follow. There is no work that we must work in order to be saved. John has already and we have already seen that salvation is divinely given. We are born anew from above and this is not something that we can control. This flies in the face of Judaism. That which Christ came against so vehemently and they responded in kind by essentially and eventually sending them to the cross. But you cannot work yourself to salvation. You cannot do anything yourself. It is all of God and none of me. This is developed progressively throughout John's gospel. It's already been given in a, in a great degree. How did the gospel start? It started with God the Son emerging from whatever realm in which he existed to create and then eventually himself become part of the time-space continuum. He made the world and the world didn't know him. That's what John says in chapter 1. But he goes on a couple of verses, as I said earlier, he would give authority to those who would receive. He, he's the one who gives the authority, you see. The power to save. Belief and unbelief. I was studying one theologian earlier this week and he listed, a, I think, five kinds of unbelief. And I suppose some of those are seen in the parable of the sower and the seed where, you know, a seed is sown in a certain place and it looks like it's going to do okay and then it gets choked off or it fell on the wrong place and doesn't do anything at all. Well, okay. But you and I are going to consider this from just two perspectives, the perspective of unbelief and the perspective of belief. You cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ believing in his name. We'll see how that works itself in the passage that we'll look at today. So what has already happened in the power of Christ, of course, John the Baptist has acknowledged and declared and presented to the world Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After that, he says to his disciples, you need to follow him and not me. He must increase, I must decrease. Then after that, Christ cleanses the temple 
And he, pre he presents the real teaching of the Messiah of the Old Testament. And it's shown and revealed in his ministry in those three years that the reality is that Christ comes twice. He comes the first time as a suffering servant. Then he comes again a second time in power and in glory. Having cleansed the temple, the Bible says he began to teach the people. We saw it in John's gospel. And he performed miracles and people were drawn. They were enamored by his miracles. And it says, and people believed, but then it said, but he did not commit himself to their faith because he knows the heart of a man. Now there's one thing, it's one thing to believe in his power to perform a miracle. It's another thing altogether to believe in him, to believe in his name. I read another uh, article whereby a scholar was presenting the astonishing truth that through history, there's never really been an effort to disprove the miracles of Christ. There was too much written. There were too many, there were too many witnesses early on. And of course, the farther we are removed from the actual time, the issue becomes a dead issue because you don't have anybody alive anymore. The overwhelming evidence always was that nobody could, could, could argue against the fact that Christ performed miracles. The only argument they could present was, well, he must be doing these by Beelzebub. He must, he must be doing this by the power of hell. To which Christ responded, be careful. You can be forgiven of anything except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So no one argues with the fact that he was a miracle worker. So people could, could watch and believe in his power to perform miracles. But then there is the belief that is the belief in his name. This passage is a passage that contrasts unbelief and belief. So then let's look at it and remember everything that's written is so that an unbeliever can believe in his name and find eternal life by believing in his name. Then after the two days, go back a verse or two. What two days? The two days that he spent in Sakar, the Samaritan village. I told you when we were there last time that the Bible doesn't say anything like this in the ministry of Christ, like he spent that long somewhere. But he stayed there particularly for the purpose of ministry. He didn't perform a miracle there. If you look at it, by, by, the, by, the, by, by divine providence and the sovereign hand of God, Christ was at the well. He had walked 20 miles. It was high noon. He was famished. He was exhausted. Had sent the disciples on into the village, perhaps a mile away to buy food. And there, just at the right time, the woman comes. People didn't come to the well at that time of day. They came later in the day. 
Just then the woman comes. Just then she draws water. Just then Christ says, give me water to drink. Just then the conversation is engaged. Remember I told you, Jews generally wouldn't have gone through Samaria. Christ was headed from point A to point B. And to get to point B, most Jews, practically all Jews, would have either gone the eastern route or the western route, but not through Samaria. Christ, however, we saw in the scripture, it told us from, from the original text that it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. He had, she didn't know it, but he knew it. He had a divine appointment with a woman. He already knew everything about her because he's God the Son. And in the course of the conversation, he revealed herself to herself. You're a prophet, she said. They've talked further. He spoke to her about true worship. She said, we know, that is the Samaritans, we know that the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. He will reveal all things to us. For the first time in John's gospel, and to of all people, a Samaritan woman, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. I'm he. She ran, told the others, you remember? And they came and at first they were drawn by this superficial belief because the woman said Jesus told her everything she had ever done. But by the time Christ had taught them, they said to the woman, we were first drawn to him by what you said, but now we've heard and we believe his word. Not a miracle, the power of the word. You see, it's one thing to believe in the miracles, but it's another thing to believe in the Christ of God himself. Now, this was those two, day, two, those two days are past, all right? He went forth from there into Galilee. Okay. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his fatherland. Now that comes from the Greek word up here, uh, patridi. Third line down, one, two, three, fourth Greek word over. It means his native land, his fatherland. A prophet has no honor in his fatherland. This is a, this is a prophecy. They're about to spend 16 months in Galilee. They had just spent two glorious days in the village of Sakar in Samaria. It was wonderful. As they came out in their ordinary robes, which were white, and they were coming up the hill, Jesus said, the fields are white to harvest. You're going to participate in something that you didn't even have part in, in the work of it. That's the glory of the gospel, the power of the Christ of God, the simple truth. And when presented just as himself, and we don't add anything to it, we just present him the way the scriptures present him. He draws people to himself. We don't have to add anything to that. And Jesus said, look, the fields are white to harvest. Here they come. Glorious two days. Now they're going to Galilee. Now Jesus testifying, here's what he's saying. 
Disciples gather around just a minute. We're headed into Galilee. It's my hometown. And I'm going to have to tell you something about the ministry. It ain't always going to be like it was in Samaria. You're not going to find them popping out of their houses everywhere just coming to receive my words and my teaching. They just don't, it just doesn't happen. You know, I've heard through my ministry about how the country in which we live, for example, is, had become gospel hardened. You ever heard that? Gospel hardened. It's just like, I've heard that so much, you know. Familiarity breeds contempt. Somebody said that, I think. If they didn't, I'll take credit for it and copyright it in my name. The people are not going to be as responsive. Now, Jesus did a lot of miracles in those 16 months. John only records a couple of them. Why? Because his purpose is so that we would believe. They're, 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 the ones that John gives us are attached to faith, to belief, how people believe. Not how they believe in a miracle, but how something leads people into a saving faith, a real faith in the person of God the Son. And you can't, you can't have that knowledge of Jesus. You can't know it unless God reveals it to you. It's a Holy Spirit thing. Now, he comes to Galilee. Therefore, when he came into Galilee, Galileans received him. Having seen all the great things he had done in Jerusalem during the feast, for they had all gone to the feast. That was the Passover feast. That was back in, what, John chapter 2. We saw that. And as he taught them, he healed them. He provided miracles. It was a wonderful thing. The, the news of Jesus is spreading all around. He's a miracle worker. He's a miracle worker. I would like to know how much was said about what he taught. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. People can go to a religious, so-called religious gathering for all kinds of stuff, but the primary reason generally isn't for the teaching. It's for something else. I'd like to know how many of them hooked into what Jesus was really saying. When he gets to the crux of the matter toward the end of his ministry, he has to tell his disciples. Now, you've heard everything I've said about the first and second comings of the Christ, the real deal of what the Old Testament teaches. Now I'm going to have to tell you that I want you to know something. I'm going to die on a cross. They're going to take me and arrest me and they're going to crucify me. But on the third day I'll rise again. All they caught, you remember all they caught was the part that he was going to be crucified. They didn't hang on to that fact that he was going to be resurrected until after he was resurrected. So Jesus performs miracles to affirm the truth. This is a big transition. When John proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, that brought an end to the Old Testament. There's nothing else to say in the Old Testament. It all now comes into the person of the Christ. The book of Hebrews, of course, is the beautiful treatise, the beautiful letter to the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, that teaches us how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament where things were just a type, just a foreshadow. But Jesus is the real deal. Jesus now is, 
is teaching them and they've received him on what basis? On the basis of the fact that they saw everything, the great things he had done in Jerusalem. Doesn't say anything about what he had taught. Doesn't say anything about that. They just took into the miracles. And that's all. Now, Jesus is telling them, his disciples, by prophecy, that they have just had a great experience with faith and belief. Just by the word. Not a miracle at all. Back in Sakar, back in Samaria. But now they're coming into Galilee. And Jesus says, guys, I've got to tell you something. It's not going to be as easy. Now, what happens during those 16 months? Oh, my heavens. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He stops a storm. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000. Then he feeds 4,000. He does tremendous, wonderful, great miracles. In all of that time while he's in Galilee. Then he goes into his hometown of Nazareth, preaches one sermon, and they want to kill him. <laughs> it's one thing to be drawn to the miracle. It's another thing to be drawn to the miracle worker himself. The contrast is made here. They received him. Why? Because they saw the great things that he had done in Jerusalem during the feast. They were there during the Passover. Oh, I know Jesus. He's the carpenter's son. My heavens, look what he's done. His first miracle, remember, was in Cana of Galilee. And he turned the water into wine. So he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official. Now, I've emboldened that. Let me go up here. The Greek word up here for royal official is... Basilikos. Basilikos. This guy came from Capernaum. Capernaum is at the other end of the north end of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. And it's an uphill trek for about 15 miles to go from Capernaum to where Jesus is. Now, this guy is an important guy. Here's why we know that. Because of the Greek word, basilikos. It means that he was an official of the king's reign, the administration. Now, who was the king? Well, they're okay. Capernaum, Galilee, right next to that, Perea. Who was the king? Herod Tetrarch. What about him? Well, he's the guy who was married to Herodias. He's the guy who was called out by John the Baptist for his illegal marriage. He's the guy who had this weird incestuous lust for Herodias' daughter. He's the guy who answered the request to bring the head of John the Baptist on the platter. This guy is serving that guy. Nobody liked the Herods. None of them. They weren't even Jews. But this guy, he, let me just move ahead for just a second. The bottom line is the power of Christ to save anyone. 
This guy had, had pledged allegiance, loyalty to the house of Herod Tetrarch. That's what the Greek word tells us. He was a royal official. He was an important guy. But of all that he had ever done, all that he had ever accomplished, all that he may have committed to himself in the world with regard to the Herods, all of that fades into nothing when he needs Jesus. Nothing else matters. This is, this is how we're led to salvation by the power of God. God makes us realize nothing else matters but Jesus. So here he comes. Son was sick in Capernaum. Capernaum. Back, I think it's in Matthew's gospel. Jesus performed many miracles in Capernaum. You know what he said? I think it's in Matthew, maybe 11 or so. I don't, Jesus said, I want to tell you something, Capernaum. If Sodom had seen what you have seen, Sodom would still be a city existing today. Then he goes on and he compares Tyre and Sidon with Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he talks about how hell is hotter for those who have seen Christ than those who were so horrible in previous times, including Sodom. And Jesus, in Matthew's guy, he makes this he makes this amazing declaration. Hell is going to be hotter for those who lived in Capernaum and witnessed the power of the Christ and did nothing. Hell is going to be hotter for them than it is for the whole load of homosexuals who died in the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about that. The importance of belief. The power of presenting Christ to everyone. God sorts them out. I can't do that. God knows who his elect are. I don't. I'm like Sproul who said, we just have to assume everybody's the elect and we just preach to them all. And we expect them all to come to Christ because we're thinking in our minds, what kind of an idiot doesn't want to come to Christ? That's what I think, but I'm not. <laughs> I won't include that in my invitation. <laughs> you, you don't know what you don't want to know what all I think during an invitation. Can you bunch of reprobates you leave here without Christ when it is so simple and free? <laughs> it's going to last forever. Oh well. His son was sick. Later on, we find out he had a fever. He was dying. Nobody could do anything for him. Having heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. He's drawn to Christ. He's drawn to Christ. He was asking that he would come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. At this moment, he thought this was the highest request that he had, but it wasn't. It's kind of like Nicodemus. Remember 
I told you that later in the story, Nicodemus gets saved. He wasn't saved in John 3, but Nicodemus came to Jesus thinking he needed one thing, but Jesus responded to him knowing that he needed something else. You need to be born anew from above. The master teacher, the scholar, the chief elite Jew, Nicodemus, as he was described by John. If anybody thought his works were at the top of the heap, it would have been Nicodemus. And Jesus said, you're nothing. You need to be born anew from above. He's drawn to Christ, but only, only Christ can make him realize why he's drawn to Christ. It is not in the human psyche. It is not in the essence of a soul of a man to condemn himself as a sinner. That has to come from God, the Holy Spirit, conviction. The reality, the realization of depravity, the hopelessness and helplessness of standing alone with the law of God on one side and me on the other and everything that I've done, I can proclaim that I'm a good person, but God knows in my heart and in my life how many times have I wanted what the other guy had? How many times have I dishonored my parents or put something in my life ahead of God or blurted out the name of God in vanity? It's easy for us to overlook the bad things that are about us. And just concentrate on the good things, but that's not how it works. We're in need of a Savior, and there's no other Savior but Jesus. He's drawn to Jesus, asking him that he would come down and heal his son. His son was about to die. Physicians had given up on him. Now, here's a guy who's an important man. And there would have been people in Capernaum, physicians, whoever, eager to help this guy's son, but they had run out. There's nothing they can do. Probably have seen this kind of fever before and they knew that this child was going to die. His only hope was Jesus. Tell you, when you get down to that point, God can do something with you. My only hope is Jesus. Isn't the world crazy today? The world is crazy. Trying to reverse genders, trying to rewrite history, standing in front of me, lying to me, Knowing that they are lying to me and knowing that I know that they're lying to me and still lie to me. It's a crazy world. It's upside down. But I take a sigh of relief. And it is as Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all. If it hadn't been granted to you from my father in heaven. So Jesus is my only hope. Always and forever. Jesus was his only hope. Now, Jesus said to him, if not for the signs and wonders you people see, 
You will not believe. This is the next step. The royal official said to him, Sir, or Kyrie, could be Lord, Kyrie, Lord, Sir. It's a, a, a term of respect. Come down. Before my child dies, we have 15 miles to go. He's nearly dead. Jesus said to him, Now remember, let me go back. Remember when Jesus was leaving Jerusalem and the Bible says they were believing in him because of his miracles. And the Bible said back in John 2 that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew the heart of a man. Jesus knows whether or not you really have faith, saving faith. You're not going to fool Jesus about that. He knew. He knew this man. This man was drawn to Christ. He knew this man was the real deal. Jesus said, man, I tell you, in my study Bible, I'd have that circled and circled underlined. Jesus said, word of God. That's all that matters, the word of God. Jesus said to him, go. Your son lives. He didn't even see the boy. He just believed Jesus. The man believed the word that Jesus said to him and he went on his way. Blind, simple, utter faith in the word of Jesus. Then already as he was going down, his servants met him saying, your boy is okay. He lives. So he asked them what hour he got better. Therefore they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, fever left him. Now the father knew that it was in that hour at which Jesus said to him, your son lives. Power of Christ, power of his word. He believed his word. Didn't see it, but he believed it. And he himself, he himself, he himself. Now, that's not, uh, that's not, that's, that's not good English. Epistison, a toss. He believed himself. But in the Greek, it's called an emphatic pronoun. It's okay in Koine Greek. This time it says, the essence of this man became a believer in Jesus, not the works of Jesus. Let me tell you, there's one thing to read the Bible and to read about the works of Jesus and say, yeah, I believe he did that stuff. Or to read the words of Jesus and say he's, he's, he's a great orator or a great teacher, whatever. It's, it's one thing to read and to believe in what Jesus did. It's another thing entirely to believe in Jesus. To believe in the miracles of Jesus is not nearly what we need as much as to believe in the truth 
of Jesus. By the grace of God, people are being saved, drawn by the power of God according to his will into his salvation, granted the gift of repentance and faith, granted the gift of belief and confession, all by the power of God, who, according to Peter, has caused us to be born again, all by the power of God and not by the power of man. That's why our salvation is so precious. That's why worship is so important to us. Because God did something for me that I couldn't do for myself and why he did it for me, I will spend into the ages of the ages pursuing that truth, grace, divine, sovereign, Grace. So now he believed. Not only that, but he became a witness. Not only did he believe, but now all of his household believes. Because of the word of God, Jesus said, Jesus will teach multitudes and do many, many things in these 16 months in Galilee. The masses will not believe. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He came into the world, and the world came into being through him, and the world didn't know him. But that paragraph ends like this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God who believe in his name, not by the will, this is, ends that passage, not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but by the will of God. John gives to us this story of faith. Because he says at the end of his book, this is the purpose of the gospel. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now, what does that mean? In his name. In the Hebrew's name, Eshua, Eshua, Yahweh saves, Yahweh is salvation. In the Greek transliteration, that becomes Jesus. In the English, that becomes Jesus. And it means Yahweh, the God of God, the, the God. There's no other God. God. El Elyon, the Most High. Yahweh Tabalot, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. All of those descriptions and names of God come to rest on the single sublime figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who is God the Son who has revealed God in creation. God, the Godhead, God, the great, mighty, living God is too great. He's too much. He's too high. We could never contain. We couldn't understand. We could never contain the knowledge of the great God only as God reveals himself in his son. There's no other way to know God. 
Speaking of the contrast of belief and unbelief. Earlier this year, Pope Francis met with the chief dude of Islam. His name has too many syllables. I couldn't pronounce his name. And the top rabbi of Judaism. Together they signed a document of human tradition. Signed it. Declaring that there's really only one world religion. The plans are being made in New York City to build the city of Abraham. The house, the house of Abraham. In Abu Dhabi. With a beautiful, tremendous church. It will be called the Church of St. Francis. He done sainted himself. A mosque and a synagogue. And this will be the one world religion. If it's not the great whore of Revelation 13 and 14 and all, if it's not the great prostitute, it is certainly a precursor. That is not belief. I read the document. It says in there that they want to work and fight against prejudice, prejudice and intolerances. <laughs> well, I'm not prejudiced. I'll tell you this. I wish everybody would be saved. I do. God is the one. Who decides who's going to be saved? That's not my decision. It's way above my pay grade. Now, I am intolerant of anything that is unbiblical. Can't tolerate it. We're told not to. We're under a command. But you see where this world is heading to make this gospel of Christ and the beautiful invitation Whoever wants to come to the waters, let him come. Take the water of life, John says in the Revelation, without cost. Live forever to make that illegal, to make that appeal intolerant, prejudiced and illegal in this world. Surely these are the last days. Lord, come quickly. Now, therein is the contrast I don't know if I will fall into my grave or the Lord will come to rapture me away before this kind of blasphemy and satanic work gets its grip on the world. But it will. According to the revelation, it will. We're this much closer to it. The Bible makes its appeal all the way through the scriptures. There's a beautiful appeal that Paul made to Timothy. He was in the Mamertine prison. It's an awful place. A hole in the ground. It's in winter. Cold. It was not shielded from the elements because the only way in and out was a, a grate 
That was the door into the hole of his prison cell. He writes to Timothy, bring me my scrolls when you come. Bring me my cloak. I'm cold. And do everything that you can do to come before winter. Spiritually, that's a great appeal. The winter of life, the time of deadness. You can come in the spring of life. You can come in the summer of life. You can come in the autumn of life, but you can't come in the winter. It's too late. The time of deadness is too late. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. According to the Scriptures, if you will admit that you are a sinner, if you will believe in Jesus, and if you will call on Him to save you, because the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is bound by His Word to save you. You can't come unless God calls. Is God dealing with you today? We'll stand in a moment, sing this song of invitation together. Perhaps you'd like to come and take me by the hand, say, Preacher, pray for me. I want to be saved. If you have other questions or need further prayer, then you can wait until you exit. And our deacons and wives, some of our deacons and wives are in rooms right across the hall as you exit to sit down with you and pray with you. Come before winter. (laughs) Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian and God leads you to come into the membership of this church. You can come during this invitation. We'll take care of all the details of church membership if that's what God wants in your life. If you have other questions, you may want to wait as you exit and talk to the deacons and their wives about it. This is God's time with you, God's invitation. Father God in heaven, Lord, glorify yourself and use this moment as you see fit. We're helpless and powerless, but to trust in you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?